verse of that song said, Speak, O Lord, till your church is built. Now, we're not talking about brick and mortar there. You realize that, right? We're talking about the body of Christ. And that's what our, our study in the book of Ephesians is about. And that's also what our fall conference is about. Every time we have a fall conference, whether it's here or someplace else, it's not just for pastors, okay? There is <coughs> excuse me, one session or time frame that is for just pastors, and that's um, a Monday morning at 12 o'clock. So we have lunch together, and we have a, a, just a time of encouragement, a little challenge for pastors. But the rest of the conference is for anyone who wants to attend, okay? So you don't have to say, well, I'm not a pastor, so it doesn't, I, don't, I can't come to that. Yes, you can. We'd love to have you come. We're encouraging you to come. Um, the sessions are, uh, the, the main speaking sessions, uh, Monday night, Tuesday morning, and then there's one Monday afternoon as well. So there's three total speaking sessions. I think there's a schedule posted on the bulletin board. If not, we'll get one uh, posted. You can also check out the NF website uh, and find a, a schedule there. Uh, but we'd love to have you come and join us for that conference, any or all of it, however much you can be here. You will be blessed by it. I do need to tell you that today is the last day that you can tell me if you want a chicken dinner, okay? I, I think I've gotten everybody written down that's uh, asked for one. I kind of projected who might want. Um, I'm still waiting to hear from those that I've projected and haven't responded yet, but maybe I projected wrong, but we'd love to have you. Maybe I don't have your name down here at all, uh, and you would love to have uh, a a chicken dinner, and you love to support the fire department. We're thankful for their willingness to help us out that way again. It's always a highlight of the conference, and pastors keep telling me, it's great the way your fire department comes over and cooks for you. And, and so if you'd love to be part of that, um, please let me know so I can get down the right number of chicken barbecues that we need. All right. <clears throat> Let's, uh, as we get started, I'm going to ask the Lord to help my voice to hold out. Um, but as we get started, let's pray. And uh, then we'll dig back into the book of Ephesians together this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you so much for the privilege of being together as a family of God, as a local body of believers, as part of your church. Father, we are Calvary Baptist Church of Preble. We are a local body of believers, much like the churches that Paul wrote to in Ephesus. Um, And the thing that we have mostly in common with the church in Ephesus is that Your son, Jesus Christ, is the head of the church. He's the head of Calvary Baptist Church. He's the head of the Universal Church. He's the head of the churches in Ephesus that received this letter. And so, Father, as Paul was writing and encouraging the Ephesian believers to be able to understand just the the magnitude of Christ being the head of the church and how we should respond to that truth of Christ being the head. May we learn right alongside the Ephesian believers from the pages of scripture this morning uh, what it is that you want us to do and how blessed we are because we are part of the body of Christ. Father, we ask that your sermon this morning will uh, bring encouragement and challenge to each one who hears it. I pray that you'll help my voice to hold out. And Lord, as we work our way through our text this morning, may you be honored and glorified and may your people here today be challenged and encouraged. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so you should be in, in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 is our text for this morning, at least the last half 
of the chapter from verses 11 on down to verse 22. We've been kind of taking bigger chunks of scripture and yet we've still been able to get through most of it. Uh, so we want to we continue to strive for that this morning. Uh, the difference between then and now. Last week we talked about um, kind of that extreme makeover. How God has taken our lives, taken us from being sinners and changed us into saints. Um, so that was the first part of Ephesians chapter 2. This morning, we're going to look at the second part, but just let's think a little bit again together about what happened last week. Verses 4 through 7 sums up the treasures that Paul was talking about. We've been learning how blessed and how rich we are because of the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Uh, it says there in, first, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sin. So here's the first part of our riches. We were dead in trespasses and sin. And there's that little word there, that very powerful word, but God made us what? alive so we were dead and now we are alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and here's the second part of our riches and he raised us up together and so the riches keep going on right he raised us up together and he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus Okay, so this is pretty good stuff that we are seeing unfold in the pages of Scripture for those who know Jesus as their Savior. And then there's a little bit of a future going on here too. It isn't always nice to know that your riches aren't just uh, temporary, that they're, they're long-term riches. He says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. They're going to go on and on and on, not just for all time, but for all of eternity. We are going to know and be blessed by the riches that are ours according to his grace and kindness through Jesus Christ. So as we move further into chapter 2 this morning, we're going to be reminded of where we have come from. You know, from time to time, it's good to be reminded of just that very fact, where we were when God got a hold of our lives and where we are now and all that has transpired between that time period. So we're going to see that from God's perspective. And this idea of looking back to where we have come from, it has a tendency to help us keep the right perspective in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the difference between then and now? Well, Paul outlines that difference for us in Ephesians chapter 2. Timothy, do I have that scripture up there for us to read together? Yeah, let's stand together as we read verses 11 through 22. And again, I always encourage you, read it with enthusiasm, with excitement. Don't just read it as ho-hum, uh, because it is not ho-hum. It is God's word, and God's word is alive, it's powerful, and it's active in our lives. So read together with me, if you will, Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 11. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision made in the hands by flesh, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope 
and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You may be seated. Thank you for reading together with me some amazing truth that is ours because of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice as we start out this morning, and if you have your bulletin with you, you should have your note page on the back. Um, we'd like you to understand that, first of all, in verses 11 and 12 of our text this morning, that there is a radical distinction. There is a radical difference, if you will, between what we once were and what we now are. And Paul goes into some pretty good detail about what that distinction is. How are we different today, or actually, the moment that we trusted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, God brought about differences in our life. He changed us. We're no longer the old man bound up in Satan and sin and all of the transgressions that were ours. We have been delivered from that. We have been given freedom and the radical difference is seen by, first of all, Paul says, you were once ungodly. You were once ungodly, and to make it even worse from a Jewish perspective, you were once ungodly Gentiles in the flesh. If you were a Gentile, there was nothing worse in a Jew's eyes than for somebody to be a Gentile. Except maybe a Samaritan, but you know what? As far as God was concerned, there's only Jew and there's only Gentiles. So Samaritans were even Gentiles. Okay? So Paul says, you were ungodly Gentiles in the flesh. The Gentiles were opposed to the Jews. And vice versa, the Jews didn't have any love for the Gentiles either. Now, if you were a Gentile, you could understand why you didn't really appreciate the Jews, okay? Um, but as a, as a Jew, you should have a love and a desire to see the Gentiles come to know your God. Just like we as Christians today should have a desire for those who don't know Jesus as their Savior 
today to come to know Jesus as their Savior. We should, have, we should not have so much animosity towards unbelievers that we don't want them to come to know Jesus as their Savior. We don't appreciate what they do in a lot of cases. We don't like their lifestyle, but we should not dislike them to the point of wishing them to never know Jesus as their Savior. Shame on us if that's our mindset. Because just like God sent the Jews into the world to represent him, and God's desire was for the Jews to be a light to the Gentiles around them so that others may be drawn to the goodness and the grace and the love and the mercy of the God of the Jews, he has that same desire for us today. That we would shine as lights in a dark world. That, that the love of Christ would be evident in our lives so that others would come to know Jesus as their Savior. And that's why I say to us, it's important for us how we communicate the gospel. We have a message that is powerful. It's life-changing. It makes changes for all of eternity. But we have to be careful in how we communicate that message because the message is offensive. The message tells somebody, whether you know them or you don't know them, hey, you're going to hell. Why? Because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And until you understand the fact that you are separated from the holy God, the one true God, and you, there is only one way to be reconciled to Him, your destination continues to be hell and separation from God. That's offensive to people. They don't want to hear that. So we communicate that message in love. It's a message of love as well as it is an offensive message. Hey, that's not the end of the story. You going to hell, you being separated from God, your story doesn't have to end there. Your story can be changed. And I can tell you how that can happen. Let me share with you God's love for you through His Son, Jesus Christ. But God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. There is no better news that you can share with anybody. And that's what God wants us to share. The difference between what we were when we were ungodly Gentiles in the flesh to what we are now as saints on our way to glory for all of eternity with Him. The Jews were God's chosen people. They had a special place in God's heart. God says, they are the apple of my eye. Can I tell you that hasn't changed Yes, God has set the Jewish people aside, but they are still the apple of his eye. God is still watching out over the Jewish people, even today as they are at war with, um, with the Palestinians, with, the, with, with Hamas and Hezbollah. God still says that the Jewish people are the apple of my eye. And God says that I still will have favor on those who have favor on Israel. We need to be praying for Israel today. As they are, uh, you know, it's, it's the goal of Hamas and Hezbollah and, 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 and some of the most radical of the Palestinians to wipe out Israel. Can I tell you this? They will never, ever, ever succeed in that endeavor. And you know why? Because they are God's people. And God still has promises to keep to his people. And he will keep those, pe- those promises. And the, and the Jewish people will again at some point 
after the rapture of the church, and we won't get into that, but that's why your eschatology is important. What you believe about the end times is so very, very important. We're not going to get into that because we don't have time for that this morning. But listen to me. After the rapture of the church, God's focus is going to turn from the church, because we're going to be with Him, and His focus is going to turn back to Israel. The parentheses where you are not my people is going to be closed. And they will again be his people of promise, his people through which he will work. So no matter who wants to get rid of the nation of Israel, they will never succeed. Because God is God and God is going to keep those promises. So as the chosen people of God, the Jews didn't miss many opportunities to let the Gentiles know that the Jews were God's chosen people. They would remind them that, well, we have, we have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's our God. He's not your God. He's our God. He should have been the God that they were trying to win them over to and influence them to follow by the way they lived life. In fact, this became an issue of pride with the Jews and a stumbling block to many in the Jewish nation. And so the, the distinction is you were ungodly Gentiles in the flesh. It gets worse. He goes on and he says in verse 2, you were called uncircumcised. That's what the Jews took great pleasure in. Not necessarily the act of circumcision, but the fact that they were circumcised. It was their identification almost, if you will. And remember that the Jewish nation was a very patriarchal nation, okay? So it was the men who were circumcised, and it was the men who were the representation of their family to God, and it was the men who were the leaders in their families to bring their families to God. And so they would take great pride in the fact that we're circumcised and you are not. Yea for us, good for us, shame on you because you're not circumcised. And they would take every opportunity to remind the Gentile people that that's what you are. You are uncircumcised. And, and we're not talking though, Paul when he writes here in Ephesians chapter 2, he's not talking about the circumcision that is of the flesh. Because that's an outward thing and it doesn't change the heart. It doesn't matter to it if you as a Jewish person are genuinely circumcised in the flesh. And if you don't live for God, your circumcision in the flesh does absolutely nothing for you. It is a work. And a works-based religion always leads to failure. It never brings you to a right relationship with God. Because you can never do enough good works. There aren't enough good works for you to do. There is only one way to heaven, and it's the work of Christ. It has nothing to do with the works that man does. So you see here the fact that they're talking about circumcision. Paul's talking about a circumcision of the heart. The hardness of a man's heart is what keeps him from a relationship with God. And until that heart is broken and softened by the circumcision of the word, then that heart remains separated from God and on its way to a Christless eternity. You were called uncircumcision. He goes on. Not only were you called uncircumcised, but you were unchristlike. Or you were without Christ. There was no relationship that you had to God. Can I tell you what? That's the most serious problem anyone ever faces. 
to be without Christ. Because if you're without Christ, there is no way for you to be rightly related to the Father. That relationship with the Father, the Heavenly Father, only comes through Jesus Christ. To be without Christ means that you have no access to God. And some people are okay with that. Eh, I don't need God. But you know what? You also have no access to heaven. Most people that you talk to want to go to heaven when they die. Nobody, wants, nobody chooses uh, outright and says, ah, I'm looking forward to going to hell. Nobody says that. They all say, I hope I go to heaven. Well, Paul's saying, if you're without Christ, if you're unchristlike, you have no hope in getting to heaven. You're unassociated. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, Paul goes on and he calls them aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You know, nobody likes to be all alone. Nobody likes to have to face the struggles of this world, of this life, on their own. Israel, right now, is, is hoping that those who call themselves allies to the nation of Israel, that those allies will step up for them. We're not going to get into that discussion. But that's, they don't want to be alone in this world. You and I, when we face the hardships that sometimes life throws at us, we don't want to face them alone. And, you know, I don't know how people face some of those hardships without Christ. We've been praying for some people who have, uh, who they or their family are going through very difficult times. And you and I know that if they don't know Jesus as their Savior, our hearts hurt so much more for them because they don't have the hope of Christ. They don't have the promises of God to help them go through the difficulties of life. To be unassociated is to mean that you're, all on, you're in this all on your own. You've got no help. And in the end, you've got no hope. Unrelate, unrelated. Paul says, you guys were, before you know Christ as your Savior, you were unrelated. You were strangers from the covenants of promise. In other words, you might have heard about God. You might have heard about heaven. You might have heard about the promises that God has given to some people. And you might say, boy, I like those promises. Boy, I would like to have some of those promises. I would like to claim them for myself. But Paul says, in times past, there were, you were without promises. You were, without, you were strangers to the covenants that God had made with his people. In the past, if you look in the scriptures, there are no promises given to the Gentiles from God, except ones that you don't want to have, okay? The promises were given to God's people. And as a Gentile, you were estranged from that. You had no way to get a hold of those promises. And God made some very important promises to the nation of Israel. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, and Ben's been going over this on Sunday nights, many of the promises. Uh, in Genesis 17, 7, we see that there was an established covenant relationship with God and the Israelite people. The Gentiles had no covenant with God. It was Israel's responsibility to bring that covenant and make it known to the Gentiles. But the Gentiles had no covenant relationship with God. Also in Genesis 17, 7, we see that God says, I will be God to you and to your descendants. Not only was Israel um, looking to God as 
um, a deliverer, but God says, I will be your God and I will be God to your children as well if you enter into this covenant relationship with me. And then in verse 8 of the same chapter, he says, I will give you the land of Canaan. You see, these are, these are amazing promises that God made to one nation. And that nation is the nation of Israel. And if you weren't part of that nation, you were strangers from the covenants and the promises that God made. Here he goes on. And if that's not bad enough, listen to this. Hope for you at, in your past outside of Christ, hope is unattainable. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're listening online and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you don't have hope and you have no way to get hope. Hope is unattainable because you have no relationship with this God. Because they had no promises, the Gentiles had no promises, they had no hope. You know what? Promises bring hope. When you're working with your children or your grandchildren and they're, they're struggling, they're having a bad day, and you say to them, hey, you know what? Um, Grandpa promises that he'll do this. You know what? You know what that almost always brings? A smile on their face. Really? You'll do this? You'll do that? Yeah, promises bring hope. The Israelite nation was a nation of hope. They didn't know how they were going to get there. They didn't know how those promises were going to be fulfilled, but they had hope in God. Can you imagine being an Israelite just leaving Egypt? And here you are on your trek and you get to the Red Sea and there's the army behind you and there's mountains on both sides and there's a sea in front of you and you're like, what are we going to do? And, and Moses says, let's walk into the water. God will protect you. God will lead you through. They had hope that God would do that because they saw all that God did in Egypt. God was faithful. God has a track record of hope. And when we look at the pages of Scripture and we read those promises, we have hope. Hope brings promises. Without promises, there's no hope. This kind of hope is the same kind of hope that we have when we talk about the rapture. You and I, things are, might, might be difficult in your life right now. Things might be hard. But when you look, fat, look and realize, hey, Jesus is coming back to take me home to be with him, that gives me hope. In fact, you know what? That, brings, that gives me joy. That word joy that we use uh, so much in the book of Philippians, if you read through the book of Philippians, the theme there is joy. You know what that joy is? That joy is directly connected to the hope that we have of the rapture of Jesus Christ and where we will spend all of eternity. That's why the circumstances in this life don't steal our joy away from us. Because we know where we will spend eternity. And no matter what's going on in this life, no matter how difficult the things in this life might be at the present moment, we still have joy because we know what awaits us in glory. Hope. When we talk about the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, we're talking about seeing Him in the clouds 
when the trump of when the trump of God sounds and the clouds split open and Jesus is in the clouds and we hear and we see him calling us home to be with him in the moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump because the trump will sound we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye because of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Outside of Christ, you have no hope, and hope is just a wish for you. Isn't it nice to know things for certain? Every year, doesn't matter what your team is, you have this hope that somehow, some way, your team is going to make it to the championship game, whatever sport it is. And there are many times throughout the season that those hopes are dashed. Sometimes it's in the first week of the season. God, man. If you're an Eagles fan, you still have hope. If you're a Bills fan or a Cowboys fan, you go, yeah, I don't know, maybe. And if you're a Bears fan, that hope right now is unattainable. It ain't going to happen this year. You see, we want hope, but we all have a wish for these things. As a child of God, it's not a wish. It's certain. It's absolutely going to happen. If God says it will happen, it will happen. Because God is the covenant-keeping God. Jehovah, Yahweh, as the children are learning on Sunday nights. And if that wasn't bad enough, Paul goes on and he says, not only is hope unattainable for you, but you are unregenerate without God in the world. If those previous six things are true, then there is only one logical result that can be. You have no hope. You have no Nothing that's going to make you alive that gives you something purpose to live for. If one has Christ in their life, then they are rightly related to God. Isn't, wouldn't it be a terrible thing to not ever be able to be rightly related to God? Paul says, you are unregenerate. You are without God in the world. It's bad enough not to have hope, but to be without God. That means there is no hope. Listen to this illustration of being without God in the world. It comes from William Hendrickson's commentary on the Ephesians, on the book of Ephesians. It says, They had resembled mariners who were without compass and a guide were adrift in a rudderless ship during a starless night on a tempestuous sea far away from the harbor. Uh-oh. That's bad. There's nothing... There's absolutely nothing good in what I just read if you were a sailor on that ship. Too far away to make a swim for it. You had no way to straighten your course. You might as well jump overboard. You might as well give up because you have no hope. What a gloomy, hopeless situation. And that's the way it is for the world. There is no hope. Let me ask you, how many of you would want to find yourselves in a hopeless situation. There's not many of us who would volunteer for that. Not many of us who would say, oh, let, me, let me do that. I'll, I'll take that chance. I know that it's probably going to be the end of my life, but I'm going to do it anyway. 
We're not all ready to step up and say, yeah, let me do that. But if you're here this morning and, and you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I need to tell you that that's exactly where you are. There's no hope for you. Now, don't throw in the towel. We still have at least 15 minutes left. Listen, Paul's going to shift gears here. Paul's going to use that powerful little three-letter word that I already pointed out to you. That word is but. And, and, and I don't like to use but as a quiet word. I like but to be a loud word, right? But we have hope in this world. Paul is done reminding them of their hopelessness without Christ. And now he's going to talk about the privileges that belong to those who know Jesus as their Savior. So we're done looking at the radical distinction. Now we're moving on to a reassuring affinity, a hope that we have. Just as there's a definite distinction between Jew and Gentile, which could cause a massive divide, there is also a sure affinity, a kinship that exists in the family of God. You see, in the Old Testament, the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Gentiles. In fact, the Jews went to great lengths to separate themselves from the Gentiles, lest they become contaminated. Ooh, we can't touch them. They make us unclean. We don't have anything to do with the Gentiles. These things changed in the New Testament, though. Now, in the family of God, you and I are part of the family of God. Those of us who know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, if there's been a time in your life where you've bowed your heart, you've bowed your head before Almighty God, and you've confessed your sins, you agreed with God that you were a sinner and on your way to hell, and you asked God to forgive you of your sins, and you believe in the work that Christ accomplished on the cross of Calvary as the only and all-sufficient means of being right with God, then you are in a family. And you're in a family that's far bigger than just Calvary Baptist Church of Preble. You're going to get a glimpse of that family on October 23rd and 24th if you come and gather together for the conference. Because there'll be other brothers and sisters, probably a couple hundred of them, who will gather in this place to sing praises to God and to enjoy the benefits that we have as children of God. We are in a family, and as the children of God, we have hope. And can I tell you this? Your nationality does not matter. The relationships that we share in Jesus Christ transcend your genealogy. As we move into this next part of the text, let's, let's just kind of imagine, pretend. Kids like to use their imagination, right? Uh, maybe as adults, hopefully we haven't lost that. To use our imagination, all right? Let's pretend that we were investigators this, this morning and that we want to find out why there is such a drastic change in our being, in our lives, since coming to know Christ. The way to find out the, the, what the drastic changes are and why they've taken place is to do what? Well, as an, as an investigator, as a detective, what do you do? You ask questions, right? You want to find out who did it, what happened, where did it happen, all of those kinds of questions. So as we look at the rest of this text, we're going to ask those kinds of questions. First of all, we're going to say, who made the relationship possible? 
Who is it that I can thank, I can give honor to, I can give glory to, I can recognize as the one who made it possible? Well, verse 13 says, here it is, listen to it, listen, are you listening? But, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The answer, obviously, is Jesus Christ makes the relationship possible. I want you to check out these next verses, verses 14 through 18. We're going to read them again, and and they're up here on the screen. I want you to listen as I read and look at the screen because it's marked in certain ways. Okay, Starting off with verse 14, it says, For he himself, who are we talking about? Who's the he, who's the himself here? Jesus, okay? So, for he himself, Jesus is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Verse 15 says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create how in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Going on to verse 16, and that he, Jesus, might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, therefore, thereby putting to death the enmity, the, the eneminess that existed between us. In verse 17, And he, Jesus, came and preached to you who were afar off, that's the Gentiles, very far away from the things of God, afar off, and to those who were near, the Jews. Guess what? It's not just the Gentiles who need Jesus. It's the Jews as well. We all need Jesus. And he moves on, and that's it. He himself, we have access by one spirit to the Father. The only way we have access to the Father is through Jesus Christ. Each one of the pronouns that were highlighted in red in our text this morning, they refer back to the same person. And that same person is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who made the relationship possible? Jesus did. What Jesus did to make the relationship possible? What did he do? Well, this is what he did. We're going back again. We're going to look at these verses a couple more times. In verse 13, it says there, You who were once far off have been brought near. Far, far, far away from the things of God. Didn't know them. Didn't even know that you should want them in your life. You who were once afar off have been made near. When you travel, and you're, we used to, as you know, travel back and forth between U.S. and South Africa. And when you get either destination, doesn't really matter, but when you're almost there, you've spent 17 hours on a plane. And even though you tried to sleep, you know what sleeping is like an economy on an airplane, right? It doesn't really happen. You might see the back of your eyelids for a little bit. But you never get rest, especially if you have kids. Okay? So you're, you're there, you're getting at the airport, and you got to go, oh, I come into this gate, and my other plane is way over there. i got to go from here to here. You're thankful for those moving sidewalks. You step on the moving sidewalk, and you're going to stand there, and it takes you 
to the next destination. You don't even have to lift up your feet to go. It just takes you. You're weary. You're tired. You're worn out. You just want to get from point A to point B. And you really don't want to have to put a lot of effort into doing that. And that escalator, that moving sidewalk brings you closer and closer and closer. One time we were, we were flying from Syracuse. Well, we were flying to South Africa, obviously. We left Syracuse. Um, and we were going to Detroit, and I know they're the opposite directions, but anyway, that's the way airlines work, right? We got on a plane to Syracuse, and it was delayed because the door wouldn't close properly. And so they said, anybody, anybody making this connection in Detroit to Amsterdam? Oh, that's us. It's going to be close, they said. Great. It's not like you're going from one place to another, short, play, short trip in, in America where, okay, you can go to Walmart and buy more clothes if you don't make your... We're talking about if we don't make our connection in Detroit, it's probably another day before we get to fly out to South Africa. Okay, well, it's in God's hands. We can't do anything about it. We get to Detroit, and you know those little golf carts they have? I don't know if they're really golf carts or not. They're gas-powered. They got a little flashing light on it. Passengers going to, and it was just us. All right, guys, hurry up. Come on, get on this cart. Come on, hurry up. And we get on the cart. And, and we had to go a long ways. And the guy who's driving the car, he's yelling, get out of the way! Get out of the way! Coming through! Coming through! The light's flashing. Move, up, move out of the way, folks! We're coming through! And, and he moves us from where we were to where we needed to be. It, it, was a, it was a far distance, but he got us there closer and closer and closer. And finally, he got us to that point. Jesus gets us to the point from where we were never going to make it to where now we have that hope of seeing him for all of eternity. It gets better. Just like it was getting worse, it's going to get better. Verse 14, not only did he make us who were far off near, he made us one. We're not enemies anymore. We're not at war with each other. We don't hate each other anymore. We are now one in one body. And that body is the body of Christ, of which he is the head. In verse 15, it says, he abolished the enmity, and not only did he abolish the enmity, but he made peace. There's a difference between not being at war and being at peace. You understand that, right? Not only are we not at war, but we are at peace. And who are we at peace with? Not just with one another, but more importantly, we're at peace with God. That's the greatest peace we need to have is peace with God. When we read this whole thing all together, we see something uh, about abolishing enmity and the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances. Is Paul saying that Jesus just threw out the law? No. What did he do? He fulfilled the law. He didn't just get rid of it and say, it's too hard for you people to do. Jesus came. He kept the law. He fulfilled the law. He now made it possible for us to live in the fulfillment of that law. But there's more to that. The importance is to understand that the law had two parts. There was the moral law and there was the ceremonial law. And you know what? You could work at keeping the ceremonial law. But most difficult was to keep that moral law. The, the moral law was fully recorded for us in the Ten Commandments. It, it's borne out in our conscience. People know when they break the laws of God. 
called conviction. Jesus summarized this law in the Gospels by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And people might say, I can do that. I can love God. God's pretty loving. It's easy for us to love someone like God, right? But you also have to love your neighbor as yourself. That's a little more difficult. I look back at our neighbors, they're pretty easy to love. But some other neighbors aren't so much, right? You know, that's why they invented these things called walls and fences between houses and properties. This is the law that believers strive to keep in spirit out of gratitude for what Christ did on the cross because we know we couldn't keep it until Christ fulfilled it and died on the cross in our place. That's the moral law. There's the ceremonial law. And these were the rules that governed the fasting and the feasting and what foods you could eat and what foods you couldn't eat. It also dealt with offerings and personal hygiene and circumcision and all those other details that sometimes you just don't want to have clogging up the things of your life. The Jews had shifted the emphasis from the moral law to the ceremonial law. And you know what? They made that ceremonial law. They didn't just take the book of Leviticus and try to live that way. They added about ten times to that book the things that you needed to do under the ceremonial law. And this was the rub, really, between the Jews and the Gentiles. This emphasis on external things, it's what caused the bitterness or the enmity between the Jew and the Gentile. This is what Christ put an end to when he suffered and he died on the cross of Calvary for us. You say, okay, that's pretty impressive, but there's something else. Why, did this rela- why is this relationship possible? Paul wants us to know that, and we're going we're gonna to work through this. It, it, It's possible because Jesus shed his blood. Paul tells us that those who are in Christ are in Christ because of the blood of Jesus Christ. There's a great old hymn written in the 1800s. The the first verse is made up of two questions. What can wash away my sins? The answer is nothing but the blood of Jesus. And can I tell you this? It doesn't matter if you're Jew or if you're Gentile. The blood of Jesus is the only thing that can wash away your sins. The relationship is possible because Jesus suffered in his flesh. The Son of God, God himself, suffered in his body on my behalf. This phrase refers to Christ's suffering and death on the cross. You see, it took the death of Christ to do away with the enmity that had been built up between Jew and Gentile. Wow! May we never let that kind of enmity build up between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Or even with those who don't know Christ that we want to see come to know Christ. He suffered in his flesh. And then we see the third thing is salvation through the cross. The cross is synonymous with the gospel. A friend of mine told me one time, he said, Pastor, I don't understand why people make such a big deal of the cross. I, I understand that Jesus died on the cross, he said. And I understand that that was the instrument of death on which Jesus suffered and died. But why do people sing so much about the cross and the glory of the cross? Well, salvation and the cross are synonymous. You can't have salvation without the cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul wrote that he did not 
preach with clever words because he didn't want the cross to be made of no effect. The cross is what makes a difference in the life of any person. At the heart of the gospel is the message of of Christ on the cross. By dying on the cross, Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Through the cross, Christ destroyed the enmity that existed between Jew and Gentile. And then Paul preaches the sermon of peace. He came. He came. This, of course, is a reference to the incarnation and all that is associated with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus came. He left where he was and he came to the he came to bring freedom and restoration to the child of God. Let me just read to you uh, the lyrics to a, a great song that sums up um, where we are because of the power of the cross. These words, you might be familiar with them. Um, the writer of this song is the same writer of the one who wrote the hymn of heaven and who wrote the song we're working on now, Creator. Um, and let me just read for you. This is our God. <clears throat> Remember those walls that we called sin and shame? They were like prisons that we couldn't escape. But He came. Jesus came. He came. And He died. And He rose. And those walls, they're rubble now. Remember those giants we called death and grave? They were like mountains that stood in our way, but He came, and He died, and He rose again. Those giants, they're dead now. This is our God. This is who He is. He loves us. This is our God. This is what He does. He saves us. He bore the cross, beat the grave. Let heaven and earth proclaim, this is our God, King Jesus. Remember that fear that took our breath away? Faith so weak that we could barely pray? But he heard every word, every whisper. Now those altars in the wilderness tell the story of his faithfulness. Never once did he fail, and he never will. This is our God. This is who he is. He loves us. This is our God. This is what He does. He saves us. Who pulled me out of that pit? He did. Who gets the glory and praise? Nobody but Jesus. Who rescued me from the grave? Yahweh. Who gets the glory and praise? Nobody but Jesus. Because He came, these things are true. He came, He defeated death, He defeated the grave. This is our God. It's a great reminder of what Jesus accomplished when He came. He had to come. He had to be obedient to the will of His Father. And when He came, what did He do? He preached peace. This is the peace that only Jesus can give. This is the peace, the inner assurance that all is well. It it makes it possible for us to sing that song, It is well with my soul. Because Jesus came and because He preached peace. He preached peace to those that were afar off. Peace. How do you have this? How, How are you reconciled to the one true God? 
It brings peace when that reconciliation happens. This inner assurance. The penalty for our sins. It's a heavy penalty. Wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is everlasting life. And along with that everlasting life comes the peace of God to those who are afar off. To those who aren't part of the Jewish system, God preached peace. And to those who were near, as I said, a reference to the Jews. Just because they were physically born of the, of the seed of Abraham doesn't mean that they had peace. They also needed a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The only way to have this unique peace is if they repented of their sins and accepted the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary, if they trusted Jesus as their Messiah. So as we continue asking questions, it's necessary to consider the result of Christ's work. This question goes to the extent of our relationship. Okay, um, Is it just a surface thing? No. We see that this passage tells us it's far more than just that which lingers on the surface. We ask this question, what's the way this relationship works? How does it work? It says here that he destroyed the middle wall of, part, of division, of partition. He take, he's taken it away. He removes the hatred that existed between Jew and Gentile. Man, can you imagine if somebody could remove the hatred between Hamas, Hezbollah, and Israel right now? You know what they would do? They would give that person the Nobel Peace Prize. No questions asked. Hands down, he gets the prize. They've tried People have tried. They've been trying for, for centuries. The only one who can do it is Jesus Christ. If a person who is part of Hamas or Hezbollah would trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, the hatred that they had toward the children of God would melt away. It's a miraculous work, this work of God. This destroying of the middle wall of division and partition that exists today. He draws both of them to God in one body. I often, when I talk with people who say, Pastor, I want to get married. And if a person's, one person is saved and another person is not saved, I, I, I won't do it. And I say, because right now is the closest you will ever be to one another. If this person who is born again and is growing in their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, what are they doing? They're getting closer and closer and closer to God. And the person who is unsaved is only getting further and further and further away from God. You can't be close unless you have the same desire, the same passions, the same God in your life. And then He draws you there. God draws those who were of different philosophies, different names, different areas, different everything. God draws them together. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 3. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. In both of these letters, Paul is trying to show us that God has erased the barriers between Jew and Gentile. And the way he did that was through the cross of Calvary. 
Romans chapter 10, verse 12, you've heard me say this before. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is over all. He's rich to all who call upon him. There is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no Hamas, there is no Hezbollah, there is no whatever distinction you might want to make. There's no German, there's no American, there's no anything. You are one in Christ, and Jesus delivers us to the Father. Wow. He delivers us to the Father. That's where we want to be, right? In the presence of God, in heaven for all of eternity. The way to get there is Jesus. Uh, let's just fill in the blanks, okay? Because we gotta, I want to fill these in, and, and there's... There's a definite relationship that you and I have. And that relationship is through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are fellow citizens with the saints. We are all equal in Christ. Citizens with the saints. We are the same destination. Our homeland is the same. And that is heaven. We are comrades, if you will. Members of the household of God. Think about the magnitude of that. Paul reminds us that we used to be without Christ, therefore without hope. But now we are part of God's family. Not only are we part of His family, not only are we comrades one with another, but we are part of God's construction, His holy building, if you will. God is building what? What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter uh, 16? He said, I will build my church. He's constructing his church, and you and I are part of it. You and I make up the church of Jesus Christ. We were without hope, without God in the world, and now we are in the family of God. Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. What a thrill, what a blessing that is. The last couple verses, and we've skipped right through them very quickly, but they do a great job of summing up where we were before Christ and where we are now. Because of Christ, verse 22 is the bow on top of the package, if you will. It tells us why the Ephesians are so blessed by God. Why, in fact, you and I as the children of God are so blessed. Why? Because Paul says we are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. God dwells in us, His people, His church. The body of Christ. We are the dwelling place of God. Let me conclude by asking a, a, a bit of a question this morning. A challenge, if you will. I want you to think about this. What kind of dwelling place am I for God? Am I a dwelling place that God wants to simply say, yeah, I, you know, there's places we go. Oh, I, I love going there. I, I want to go back there. I wouldn't mind living there. Does God say that about us? He's my dwelling place. He's my dwelling place. I, I live there. And you know what makes you know what makes God happy? Is when we provide a loving, hopeful, God honoring place for him to dwell. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And and we should live in such a way that others know that God dwells in us and that we represent Him well in this world. Do I allow... You know what? 
you, you have this place that you like to go to, and every now and then they make some renovations. They make some changes. And they always make those changes because they want it to be a better place for you to go. Our bodies are in the process of being renovated. Our, our dwelling place where Jesus lives is being renovated. He's making us more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We sang that song, Living Hope, this morning. We are the place where Jesus dwells. God has made provision for all the work that needs to be done, and I need to just let him, say, let him do the work. Okay, God, please work in me. Make me who you want to be. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Thank you. Thank you so much for the radical difference that you have made in our lives. We have seen and been reminded this morning of what we were, who we were before Christ. And now, Lord, we see what we are. Not because of what we did, but because of the cross. Because of King Jesus who has made these transformations in our lives. Father, thank you so much for our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.